You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. I hope it's not uh, inappropriate to give a Dharma talk in a in an official Milwaukee Bucks World Champions T-shirt. Um, <laughs> this is a you know it's an interfaith talk, and this is the holy vestment of my true religion. Um, I have hey, the hat. Robert, I'm not going to wear the hat, but I have the champion's hat too. Robert is not Green Bay. <laughs> that's next. That, yes, that's next. That's well, next. Robert, can you buy me a hat and a, and a uh, Absolutely. I'll I'll be down for I'll be down for Jukai next week, which is why I'm giving this talk today. Anybody I'll, wants a t-shirt, let me know. I'll, re I'll reimburse you. <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, so speaking of that, next week. Um, in this space, uh, I'll be receiving Zen precepts, or in Japanese, the word is Jukai, in a ceremony at the Zen Center in the Dharma Room. I'm in Milwaukee today, uh, where I live, obviously. Um, if it, for those of you who may not be, a pre, be acquainted with what precepts are, Jukai, um, in Zen Buddhism, these are like ethical codes of conduct that support our practice. So they include such things as not lying, not, not dealing in drugs, not speaking ill of others, these sorts of things. So when you accept these precepts in a ceremony, that's sometimes taken to mean a person sort of officially a member of a Sangha, officially Zen Buddhist. Um, this will actually be the second time I've taken these. Uh, I received Zen precepts in my former Madison Sangha, Korean tradition Sangha years ago. And um, this being my second time through, since I'm redoing them, not so, not so much doing them, I didn't know if I wanted to use up everyone's time on a Sunday morning in a big ceremony. So my original idea was to receive these precepts in private, not use up everybody's time with them. And instead of a public ceremony, do a Sunday morning Dharma talk about what it means um, to take precepts, especially for somebody who still goes to church and still considers himself a Christian like I do. Um, so the answer I got to that suggestion is, let's do the public ceremony and why don't you do the Dharma talk too? <laughs> so you get me for two straight Sundays and this was not my idea. <laughs> so, you know, This was, uh, uh, you know, I mean, people around the Zen center are a little crazy, you know, not to speak ill of them, but I gotta, I gotta break the precepts while I can. So, um, you know, whoa, you know, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not, that's a lie. <laughs> Yeah, I could use a drink, I'll tell you. Um, we'll break all the precepts before Sunday. Anyway, seriously. So even though I've received the precepts before, I wanted to accept them again here at ZLMC as sort of a sign of belonging and commitment to the Sangha and to Roshi as my teacher. I, I felt that was important. Um, I also would like a Japanese name because we have so many Roberts in the Sangha. It would be good to be called something different. Um, but I, you know, I, I take them pretty seriously. And Roshi says, and I, I love this teaching, Roshi says that without the precepts, Zen is just a hobby. And I, I agree with that. I think Zen is meant to penetrate all of your life. And that's what the precepts help with, um, not just the Dharma room or the meditation cushion. Um, if to, to borrow a metaphor from basketball, um, the meditation room is sort of the practice court and the rest of life is the actual game. I think. So um, the precepts help with that. The precepts are sort of the rules of the game. Um, and I, I take them pretty seriously. And so I'm, I'm really excited about taking them, very joyful to take them next week with you all. Um, so if, if you come from a Christian background like I do, um, my mother was from Italy, you know, she was a very Roman Catholic. Um, you might note that the precepts bear some resemblance to the Ten Commandments in Christianity. So in the precepts of our, gen our Zen tradition, first we vow to take refuge in Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the three jewels of Buddhism. We vow not to create evil, to practice good, and to create good for others. Um, and then sort of in the style of the 10 commandments, there are the 10 grave precepts that you take. These are codes of conduct. So no killing, no stealing, no misuse of sex, no lying, lying, no dealing in drugs, no speaking of the faults of others, 
no praising of yourself while abusing others, no sparing of Dharma assets, no indulgence in anger, and no slandering of the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Now, um, in Christianity, the Ten Commandments are never to be broken. They're sort of absolutes. Uh, I mean, in, in practice, of course, everybody breaks them. We all break them, um, whether we're Christian or not. And, but, but in Christianity, the idea is, is you're always forgiven and you can start fresh, especially if the circumstances under which you broke the commandment made it very difficult for you to keep the commandment. So that, but, but they're absolutes more or less in the Christian tradition. In Zen, the precepts are more like guidelines. They're not commandments. They don't hold in every circumstance. Um, there's a story I was told by a teacher the first time I took precepts um, about, um, uh, this is an old and ancient Zen story about a monk standing at a fork in a, por in a forest path and a rabbit runs by and then a hunter comes and says, which way did the rabbit go? Uh, well, if the monk keeps the precept against lying, the rabbit might die. So the monk breaks the precept for the good of all beings involved. So sometimes the precepts can be broken in the name of the spirit of, of, of all the precepts. Um, I really like that in Buddhism, I really appreciate that leeway for right action according to our practice, according to the full practice, rather than this rigid set of rules. Um, that's a big difference between the two traditions, um, Christian and Buddhist. I mean, the core of meditation, I think, is to redirect our attention away from the echo chamber of like our self-directed, self-interested thought and connect instead with the whole of existence. So, it, you know, if we do that often enough and sincerely enough, I think the idea is we're bound to start acting sort of automatically in the best interest of all beings instead of just our small selves. So, you know, meditation is sort of, the, it's the, the laboratory for that. Um, when, it, when I'm faced with a difficult decision about what, what to do or how to act in a situation, I often find it helpful to meditate on it while trying to leave that situation or that question alone and sort of to rest quietly until what to do becomes sort of obvious to me or, or it more occurs uh, to me rather than being reasoned out. Um, and um, it sort of reminds me of a passage in Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Tao Te Ching. So Stephen Mitchell is a Zen author and he translated the Tao Te Ching. And part of his translation reads, do you have the patience to wait until your mind settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? And that to me is the Zen ideal. Um, the right action arises directly from transcending your self-interest through meditative practice. I think that's sort of the ideal of it. But the thing is that doesn't always happen because our practice isn't perfect. <laughs> um, even as our practice deepens and matures, it never perfects. So the great thing from, from my perspective is that when in doubt about what to do, uh, we can go with the precepts. You know, if, if the right action just won't arise by itself, uh, or if we find ourselves unable to wait until the mud settles and the water becomes clear, well, the precepts are there to help. Um, and I really feel like they've saved me again and again and again from harming myself and harming others. It's really amazing to me how comprehensive the precepts are. I mean, they're ancient, so you know, there's, there's a, a lot of life experience backing up those precepts. And if you read them carefully, one of the great things about um, studying them is you, you learn how widely applicable they are to any situation. Um, uh, and, and Roshi really helped me understand this when we studied the precepts together. Um, for example, the precept to, enjoy, to avoid drugs and intoxicants seems pretty narrow on its face and it seems pretty obvious. I mean, getting drunk obviously doesn't help anybody, yourself or anybody else, it can endanger other people. And addiction 
you know, has plagued, plagued civilization for most of human history. So that, that precept seems a little obvious on its face. But we're also surrounded by things that we don't think of as drugs or intoxicants, but are just as intoxicating and dangerous, addictive and harmful. So money, um, you know, a, approval, people's approval, um, power, stature, Facebook. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of intoxicants out there around every corner. So this precept has sort of helped me look out for anything in my life that's going overboard. Um, I feel like that precept has given me a radar for anything that's becoming pleasure for its own sake um, at the expense of other people and priorities, even basketball. <laughs> so my late husband, uh, who was not a sports fan when we met long ago, we were, um, we were young. And um, over time, he developed a taste for um, for football and especially for baseball. He became a huge Milwaukee Brewers fan. We would go to a lot of baseball games together, but he never liked my favorite sport of basketball. He never got along with the Bucks. Um, he said the action of basketball was too continuous and it took too much of my attention. Like he felt he was alone because <laughs> the Bucks were getting all my attention when we would watch. There were no stops in the action. We couldn't analyze, we couldn't talk. We couldn't be with each other at the same time because the, the, the bucks would monopolize me. So I practiced extreme restraint with my basketball addiction for 32 years. Um, I pretty much swore off basketball unless he, he wasn't around and then I would sneak it in. <laughs> um, like I was sneaking, sneaking into the, the, the forbidden cabinet. Um, uh, now that he's gone, you know, look out, I've got season tickets. You know, I've, I've let it go completely berserk. Um, and, um, uh, but nobody's getting hurt by that. I don't think, um, all my friends, in fact, are thrilled about it. Um, somebody bought somebody at the auction for ZLMC is actually paying for the opportunity to go to a Bucks game with me, which is frightening. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but I'm still on the lookout for signs that I'm neglecting more important things in favor of all that basketball. I mean, this month, basketball with, with the, the Bucks in the playoffs and winning the championship, it took a lot of my time and attention. And I was conscious of neglecting work and neglecting other things um, because of the precept. Um, you know, I keep that precept in the name of other people, other sentient beings that might hurt. I don't treat it as a commandment that God might punish me if I break. Um, you know, um, in Christianity and other theistic religions, God is often sort of portrayed as this judge who is going to punish um, our sins and forgive us if we do badly, you know. Um, in Buddhism, it's different. You know, it's often taught that we receive the, that we and the world receive the result of all our actions, good and bad, through karma. Karma in our Western culture has come to have sort of a mystical new agey connotation, um, similar to luck or fortune. Um, you know, don't do that. It's bad karma. It'll redound to you some way. And that mystical, that mystical view of karma for me isn't too much different from the idea of a God rewarding or punishing our sins or good behavior. You know, it, um, that to me is sort of a, almost a Christianized idea of karma or a westernized idea of karma. Um, but in the early Buddhist scriptures, uh, the Sanskrit word karma and the earlier word kama, which is from the Pali language that the original Buddhist scriptures are written in, it simply means action. Um, I actually took Pali classes on Zoom during the pandemic. It's part of the way I wiled away the lockdown is I, I took a year of college Pali <laughs> in an accelerated year in um, and I learned that the roots of kama, the Pali word that predates karma, are simply ka, meaning to do, and ma, meaning measure or result. So it, this is more like our idea of action and reaction in physics um, than it is like a moral code. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. 
you know, there's no God keeping score according to some big rule book and, and punishing or forgiving according to some superhuman code of judgment. You know, action and reaction is just the nature of the universe. Um, but it has occurred to me in meditating on this for a long time, what is the actual difference though? <laughs> What's the difference between God sending a result of our action in punishment or forgiveness and karma sending a result of our, uh, uh, of our action? I mean, how much do we even really know about that? Um, so I'm someone who hasn't been able to give up God so easily in my years of practicing Zen. I found over my years in Zen that I, I feel like Buddhists have a little bit of a God phobia. Uh, and for good reason. I mean, that's it, perfectly understandable because the ranks of Zen, especially here in the West, are filled with people who have fled theistic religions, God-based religions, um, because they have bad or even harmful ideas of God. Um, Religions, for example, that treat God as some superhuman who gives permission to oppress people with different views or different skin colors or different sexualities. I mean, that God's out there in Christianity, in the dark corners of Christianity. And a lot of people, a lot of Zen practitioners are fleeing from those dark corners and I totally get that. Um, that's a God we shouldn't want anything to do with, um, for sure. But I feel fortunate to be, to still believe in sort of a better kind of God than that, I think. Um, I feel fortunate not to have thrown out the whole idea of God to, in the name of avoiding a bad God. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure belief in God actually makes me a better practitioner of Zen than if I, than if I had dropped Christianity and church and God completely. And I'm certain that practicing Zen makes me a better God believer and a better Christian. And I feel like in my life, the two faiths together are not in opposition in my life, that they're in synergy in my life. Um, for me, the two faiths don't conflict with each other. They don't limit each other. They sort of supercharge each other. They're, it's sort of additive or multiplicative um, of each other. And, and I came to that, I've come to that conclusion after many years of trying to decide between the two. Um, I had many years of, well, am I, am I Buddhist? Am I Christian? Should I be one? Should I commit to one? Should I commit to the other? Am I giving one short shrift? I used to talk to my priest about this all the time. And finally, one day she said, you know, Bob, not everything in life is an either or situation. Sometimes you, you run across both and situations. And she said, I think what you have here is a both and situation. Um, and I started to relax into that. And ever since then, it feels like my spiritual life, and in fact, my whole life has sort of come a little bit more into focus and into meaning. And it's one of the things that really helped me through my episode of grief when I lost my husband two and a half years ago after 32 years together. I think having both those faiths was a real strong, strong safety net um, when that occurred. I don't know how people get through a day, much less a lifetime, without, if, if they don't have any concept of how the world works, that, uh, any concept that the world is more, just a, more than just a random bunch of occurrences, um, uh, in times of trouble, I really needed something more than that. And I got that double through these two faiths, I feel like, and the intersection of them. Um, I think we were talking in teacher training the other day, you know, uh, we were reading a chapter about how Zen is hard or how Buddhism is the hard way to do it. And my feeling is, well, you know, Zen practices can be challenging, you know, retreats are challenging. Um, meditation can be challenging, but boy, it's not as hard as not Zen. <laughs> I mean, it hasn't been as hard for me as trying to get through life without it. So, um, so for me, the two faiths are really, really important and I, I, I will never, you know, be choosing between them. I've, I've, I've lost the urge to try to 
choose one or the other. I'm just accepting them both. Um, and I don't think, I, the more I do that, the more I realize they fit together very well. They're not the same. I don't want to, I don't want to imply that, that they're the same religion because they're not. But they fit together fairly well, I think better than most people would understand, would admit. Even the Dalai Lama doesn't really want to admit they fit together. He's been sort of anti-Christian um, Buddhist. He said, that's not possible. Because I think, like, like I said, I think a lot, a lot of Buddhists are threatened by letting the idea of God in because of the bad gods that are out there. But I feel like they do fit together. Like, I think most Buddhists would agree that all of us as individuals are part of something larger, right? We're part of some unitary, interdependent, constantly changing thing. Um, you know, one with everything. Um, almost a cliche in Zen Buddhism, you know, that there's the, there's the joke, what did, the, what did the Zen master say to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. You know, it's almost like pop culture. Um, so as, ind as independently acting parts of an interdependent whole, everything we do in the Buddhist conception of the world impacts everything and everyone else. That's also the physicist's conception of the world. Um, and this is why we have precepts and want to keep them, you know, to save the whole world from suffering from the bad things we do. That's why we have precepts. It's not for some mor moral reason. Um, I mean, the, the morality comes out of right action and its impact. Um, so Buddhists and Zen practitioners, Zen folks, have words for this one big interdependent something that we're all part of, you know? So the Buddha nature, or Indra's net, or energy, or consciousness, or mind, or the absolute, that's a big one, you know? Um, I, and these are mostly sort of impersonal, non-godlike terms. Um, my problem in trying to sort of go full Buddhist has been that I've never quite been able to bring myself to believe we're all part of something that has less personality than ourselves. <laughs> I mean, I've just never been able to bring myself to believe that the whole of consciousness is less conscious than we are. Um, I mean, for me, God is a word, God is like a word for the sum of all personality, the sum of all mind, the sum of all consciousness. And so I kind of feel like that in, in absolute reality, God is the person who we all are. God is not who we're created by, it's who we're created from. Um, God's not a white bearded dude sitting on a cloud separate from ourselves, controlling the world according to his whims. That's the bad God, that's the dangerous God. Um, but I would say, I would submit that maybe it's not a bad idea sometimes to envision the God of all consciousness as a sentient being who is outside and apart from us in the name of helping us understand what we can't conceive with like our limited individual human minds. Um, I mean, for me, that kind of visioning lends some color to what can sometimes feel to me after, you know, after being raised Christian, like a rather stark and impersonal Zen practice in Buddhist faith. You know, in comparatively, it can sometimes feel to me to be kind of black and white. Um, giving the absolute a personality, kind of, for me, it helps me understand that my Zen practice is not a self-improvement program, you know, and my meditation bench is not a workout platform to build my enlightenment, uh, enlightenment muscles, you know, that's not the idea. And, and for me, a belief in the absolute as God sort of helps, helps with that. It helps me keep that in mind. Um, belief in gods, I think, helps me remember that when I keep the precepts, I help someone, not something. 
for me, it makes the precepts more important. Belief in God, for me, helps me remember that when I break the precepts, I run afoul of something that exists consciously, you know, not just some abstract law of cause and effect. Um, after I've practiced Zen mostly wordlessly for a week, uh, I really love going to church and hearing these ancient common tales of love and compassion and social justice brought to life in the gospels. I mean, you know, Christian scriptures get twisted pretty badly uh, by people who aren't so moral, but really these are, these are tales of love, compassion, and social justice. If you just read them with a, with a clear mind. And um, uh, I love those tales. I, I wish there was more of that in Zen versus, you know, the, the stormy Zen masters hitting the students, you know, in, in the ancient times. Um, I love hearing the, in church, I love hearing the absolute turned into this Holy Spirit that breathes in each of us. Um, that lends a little more meaning to me when I count and concentrate on my breath, you know? Um, it makes counting the breath seem like not so clinical an exercise and maybe more of a sacred exercise for me. Um, but at the same time, I really cherish what Zen practice brings to my Christian belief and my Christian community. You know, I, I, um, just as Christianity sort of helps me understand that Zen is not a do-it-yourself program, I think Zen has helped me understand that Christianity is not like a bargaining program with God. Um, it, it's helped me learn that, it helps me keep in mind, Zen practice keeps in mind, that helps me keep in mind that each of us bears personal responsibility for everything that happens in the world. God's not up there controlling it. Um, theistic tradition, the, theistic religions, like God-based religions, especially Christianity, they tend to be transactional. You know, if you believe and are baptized, then God saves you. If you don't believe and you're not baptized, then you are not saved. That's actually in the creed that you say, that we say every week in the Episcopal Church. Episcopal Church. If you believe and are baptized, you are saved, you know. Um, that, to me, tends to separate humanity into sort of us and them, saved and not saved. And that's the Christianity that produces huge mega churches full of believers who think they are God's special people and they go to church every Sunday to get their egos boosted. You know, that that's the bad Christian religion. And Christians have struggled with that sort of teaching since the very beginning, since the early church. The Christian church has never settled the battle between those who think we are saved by grace, by the grace of God, through nothing that we did on our own, and those who believe we are saved by our works and by our deeds. And the big problem in the Christian religion is that the scriptures are not a help. They're all over the Bibles, all over the map on this. One verse it'll say it's grace, the next verse it'll say it's, it's works. There's no answer to it. And believe me, I've read the whole Bible. I've looked for it. So that tension doesn't exist as strongly in Zen, I don't think. And that's because Zen isn't transactional. It's experiential. You know, what Christians call salvation, Buddhists call enlightenment. Um, and enlightenment is right there in the nature of our experience all the time. Uh, all we have to do to access it is get out of its way, <laughs> is to get our self-interested, echoey thoughts out of, out of enlightenment's way. Um, get our own clouds out of the sky of enlightenment. Um, I mean, Christians struggle a lot with their Bible. Have you ever, if you've ever read it, I mean, you know, parts of it are quite disturbing. <laughs> I mean, one minute God is sending down a commandment that, that thou shalt not kill. And the very next minute, the very same book of the Bible, he's commanding that his people slaughter all the Canaanites and take their land. You know, it's hard to understand. Um, Zen has gifted me with a very comfortable view of the Christian Bible. Because Zen has taught me that truth is an experience and not words. Um, words matter. 
it's not that words are, are meaningless, words matter, but they're, in Zen, they're signposts to point you toward the truth. They're not the truth itself. The truth itself can't be expressed in words. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the truth. It would be something simplistic. You know, I doubt that the Zen master Nan Sen actually cut a cat in half, as in the ancient story. Um, you know, save this cat. Give me one word and save this cat. But that violent story rooted in ancient history points towards something truthful. Um, so in Zen terms, all teaching and words are fingers pointing toward the moon. You know, words are only there to help us toward our actual experience of the truth. Um, no religion or faith has, or science for that matter, has a monopoly on that truth. Um, but I feel really fortunate to have these two sets of spiritual fingers, the, the Christian set and the Zen Buddhist set, sort of pointing at the moon of truth in my life. Um, so, I'm, you know, I, that's why the precepts are going to mean a lot to me next week. Now, I'm not going to take a long time. I, I, I mean, I, I think that um, particularly since I'm going to be back next week, I don't want to go too long here. Um, but before I wrap up, I just want to put in a plug. Um, if you're interested in the intersection between Zen and other faiths, including the faith of modern science, uh, you might be interested in the interfaith circle here at ZLMC. I am the steward. Um, now, um, we're on hiatus at the moment. Our Wednesday evening meeting time had become problematic for a number of us, including myself. Um, and so I've put it on hiatus for the summer in part while I wrap up some other responsibilities. I'm on the board of my church. Um, and I'm finishing my term there. And I become fall, uh, we're planning to reinstitute the circle as an occasional add-on via Zoom after Sunday morning Zen. That's the way we're going to re reconstitute it. And especially when Zen, Sunday morning Zen has any sort of interfaith theme, we'll have some time afterward to gather as a circle and discuss a little extra time. Um, we'll be able to do, make this Wednesday to Sunday switch in part because my church has instituted a Saturday afternoon service. This is very exciting for me because I will no longer, I no longer have to choose between church and Sunday morning Zen on Sunday mornings. It's, it's kind of an interesting story. Because of the pandemic, when we first reopened our church, we had to split into several services because of the capacity limits put on the church. And so what we did is we started a Saturday 4 p.m. service, kind of like we're an Episcopal church, but then it's very common in the Catholic tradition to have a Saturday afternoon um, anticipatory mass. Well, we started that. And then because it was five o'clock when we were done, instead of having coffee hour, we started doing holy happy hour <laughs> with adult beverages. And I know you'll find this shocking if you know anything about people from Wisconsin, but everybody's coming to Saturday all of a sudden. <laughs> everybody's coming to holy happy hour instead of coffee hour. <laughs> and Saturday is becoming our big time. And so, um, I am going to be moving a lot of my church life to Saturday afternoons and Sunday mornings. I'm hoping that I'll be able, especially come fall, to be spending, I still have some vestry meetings on Sunday mornings, but hopefully come fall, I'll be able to be more regular, uh, more regular participant with everybody here at Sunday morning Zen. And that's when we will do the interfaith circle is we will start doing them on occasional Sunday mornings. Now, if you're interested in knowing about the meetings and activities and when we're going to do this, what Sunday mornings we're going to do this, email me. I'm going to put my email in the chat. It's just my name at clmc.org. Um, and I'll put you on our interfaith circle mailing list and you'll get updates as to what Sundays we'll be hanging around for maybe a half hour after to have a little uh, interfaith talk. And I'm hoping that as the, as the um, pandemic fades behind us, we can even do a few things in person once in a while. Um, as I, I spend enough time in Chicago, um, I'm, I'm down enough so that sometimes maybe after Sunday morning Zen, we could have a little interfaith luncheon or whatever. So that's everything I have to say for this morning. And um, if anybody has any reaction or questions, I'm glad to open it up. Robert? Robert? Yes. Can you hear me? Yep. 
Uh, I love your talk. And I, it, it, what I hear you saying is that you have a need to personalize the absolute. That the language we use for the one body sounds very abstract and impersonal. Mm -hmm. And I have often felt this as well, actually coming, being in the Zen tradition and have felt some attraction to Pure Land because of the kind of the, uh, I don't know how to say it. Um, you the know, devotional Pure Land, Yeah, there's a devotional aspect to Amida Buddha. And it's sort of like putting flesh on the bones. And I hear you saying that you have a need for that. And I, I think that's really lovely that you can have both Zen and the Christian as part of your practice. And I'll just say one more thing. I've told this story before, but when Sensei and I were living in Hawaii, uh, Father Keating came over to Oahu and I, I went over, I flew, I, we were on the big island and I went over and had a lovely um, couple hour conversation with Father Keating. And then he invited me, he was giving a meditation instruction to a group of Catholics. So I went with him to this Catholic church and the way he taught meditation just struck me as so, you know, when we teach meditation in our tradition, it sounds very analytical and kind of cold, you know, take this posture and count your breath. The way he entered, the way he taught meditation to these Catholics, he said, if you want to get to know someone, you got to spend time with them. You got to hang out with them. And he said, if you want to get to know God, you have to spend time with him. And I just thought that was such an interpersonal and loving way to talk about meditation that would never occur to us in the Zen tradition to teach it that way. So I, I just love your talk this morning. I think it's lovely that you can integrate both traditions within your spiritual practice. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I love Father Keating, and, and I, I think there's so little difference between contemplative prayer and Zen meditation. Um, I don't practice contemplative prayer quite the way he teaches it. I'm not that devotional, not quite that. I'm, I'm still more trying to more feel and experience than relate with or, you know, but, but I, it's the difference is thin. You know, and I love the story of Father Keating. I mean, how how this partly came to be kind of contemplative prayer is that his abbey was right down the street from the Insight Meditation Center, and Zen you know Buddhists would wander into the abbey wanting to know about Catholicism, and um, they it kind of became a synergy between the two. So that that story was always kind of special to me. Hi, Susan. It's good to see you. Hi, everyone. I have a question to follow up Roshi's question, also about visualizing, visualizing uh, the absolute. But where does Jesus come into this for you as a Christian? I mean, there is God and there's Jesus. And how do you meld the two? Um, is Jesus the visualization? So not for me exactly, um, and I didn't want to get too Jesus-y <laughs> in a talk to the Zen Center. But to me, the whole, the story, first of all, he's a moral exemplar. So on a, on a simpler level, you know, that moral code that he taught is something that is very infallible um, for me. That's him as a, that's Jesus as a prophet. So there's that. Um, but I also think the story, the, the whole story of God becoming flesh, being resurrected, is sort of a metaphor for the union of humanity and divinity, you know, how we are all part and parcel of God. Um, and and the fact that you have to die to live. I mean, I find that to be very similar to a lot of Zen teaching. Um, Zen master Sung San, um, which was the Zen master that founded the Korean school I used to be part of, when, they, when he was asked about uh, the, you know, what is life and death, he would say, well, you are already dead. You, you, have, you have to like let go of life to understand. You can't create that with your mind. And I, I just, I find that the resurrection story is just shot through with that. 
and um, that you know he who he who grasps at life will lose it, and he who lets go of life will save it. That was one of Jesus's core teachings, and that's what the whole story, the whole gospel story, for me is about. So that's sort of what where it is for me. Um, and, and we are all one in Christ. That's another very popular thing. I mean, I just think that that how we are all unified in each and every life. Um, that's another thing. Um, you know, the body of Christ is another word probably for the absolute. So that's where those things would come for me. Yeah, Shishin, hi. Morning, Robert. Morning, everybody. I loved your talk. Um, so I want to talk, touch on a couple of things. Um, you um, go back and forth between the word faith and religion. And I think there are two completely different things. I think uh, maybe a lot of people consider Buddhism a religion, but I don't know that they consider it a faith. I think there may be faith within religion, uh, within Buddhism, uh, just as there may be hope within Buddhism. But I don't think faith and religion, this is just for me, are the same thing. I think when we, when we consider, I don't, con I don't know whether I consider Buddhism a, a religion or not, actually. I, I'm, I deal with that a lot. I'm just not there. Like, you're just not there with a lot of things. It's, it's a fluid practice we have, which I really love about Buddhism. Um, but at any rate, um, I don't think it's a faith. I think the, the activities within it can embody, a can embody faith. So I, just a comment there. Um, I'm not surprised that the Dalai Lama doesn't want to go to God because he comes from a country where there was no God. And if you talk to Buddhists who are, for example, in Thailand, where I was a number of times, they don't even know what you're talking about when you talk about God. They're, 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 uh, religion, if you will, their Buddhism evolved out of the teaching of, of Buddha, the teachings of Buddha from Southeast Asia, and never involved God. Maybe gods out of the Hindu tradition, but but no overreaching God uh, in the theistic way that you were discussing. And I think it's very interesting when when we think about it in the United States and North America, particularly we, this we're a Judeo-Christian nation now infused with another form of, um, of uh, God-fearing people, Islam. And uh, th those three major religions have no sense of a non-theistic religion. So, uh, and so those of us who have been brought up in the United States, particularly, that's all I can speak of, uh, and shifted from a theistic religion, of course my perspective is gonna be a lot different from that of somebody who was born in a country where that didn't exist. So I, I'm not surprised. Uh, and then one other comment, uh, I may join your group only because I've started reading a really interesting book called The New Monasticism. And anyone who is interested in the flow of what is happening between, not between, among all of our religions today, and who is interested in another way of thinking about being a monastic in the world, might want to engage in this book and the discussion out of this book. It's by a guy, two guys named um, Corey McEntee and Adam Bucco. Uh, Pat and I had a chance to see an interview with uh, McEntee uh, with um, Brian Joshin Burns. And uh, it, he, his story and the story of this book is fascinating. And uh, Robert Keating, uh, I think has an afterword in it. He's, I think he subsequently died. Um, just, just after I think he wrote that piece, but he was very much a part of, of their life and uh, their discussions. So thank you again. I hope I didn't take too much time here. And great to see you, Susan. Um, yeah, I, so I'm really interested in monasticism. Um, you, my mother was very Catholic. And in fact, she was, in, um, she was ticketed to be a nun before World War II hit in Italy and that interrupted it. Um, and she wound up marrying a GI in Milwaukee and, from Milwaukee. Um, but um, I've always been really drawn to that. And one of the things that draw, draws me to Zen is the monastic, it, it is the monastic aspect to it, the, the, the practice every day, practice every minute sort of aspect. And I'm particularly interested in Benedictine spirituality. I've, I go to um, St. John's Abbey in Minnesota for retreats sometimes, hang out with the monks. 
And I, if you if you read Sister Joan Chittister, she's a wonderful monastic writer, and there are some Zen-like, um, you know, aspects to her writing. Um, as for faith and religion, so um, I I do think they're different things, but for me, and I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not the arbiter of these words. Um, like I tell my students in the journalism school, you know, like like I'm not I'm not the oracle. I'm, these are my opinions, but. Um, for me, Buddhism is both. They're not the faith and religion are not the same thing. But for me, Buddhism is, are both is both. It's a faith because it's a set of principles that can't be proven, but we're going to place our trust in them. Um, so that to me makes makes Zen and Buddhism a faith, and it's a religion because it's something that is, that we practice, that we go through, you know, actions to bring into the world, like meditation, like you know, our Sunday morning services like this talk. So that's the way that I define them, that I would define faith and religion not as being the same thing, but I would say that Zen and Buddhism are both for me. That's just the way I define them. Is there anybody else? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. Um, I just had two comments. Um, actually three. It's really wonderful being here at the Zendo. So if anybody is from around here can join us on Sundays, it's really great to be here. Um, just two uh, quick comments. One is, um, you know, the precepts are typically, um, I think traditionally stated in sort of the, you know, don't do this and don't do that. And I remember when um, I started um, studying, uh, there's a book, and I cannot remember the author's name, but I think it might be the name of the book might be Radical Acceptance. Um, but the author sort of this particular author, she's probably not the first one sort of flips them and um, states them in a very positive way. So sort of I take up the way of speaking truthfully of other people. And every one of the precepts is is spoken in that sort of um, positive direction, which for me was um, really helpful. It really sort of set me to a forward motion um, that I liked a lot. So I just wanted to state that. Uh, and then the other thing also came from something I read, you know, when you were talking about your um, dilemma between am I a Christian or am I a Buddhist, you know, going back and forth and then coming up with the both and for me, that's one of the things I love about Zen is the recognition that things are very, very often both and. And I remember reading um, a, a book by Pema Chodron, where she said that we're always trying to get ground under our feet. We're always trying to figure out, is it this or is it that? So that we have some sense of security. When in fact, the, the practice is to recognize that there is no ground under our feet. That, that living in that fluidity and that constant um, not knowing is, is really the, um, the practice of our life. Um, and that was also something that was really helpful to me to sort of release needing to know, is it this or that? Absolutely. And a lot of people, uh, uh, several people in chat have said it, that that's Tara Brock, oh. radical acceptance. So, no. I'd like to say, uh, Robert, I uh, really enjoyed the talk. Um, I, I don't struggle. I, I grew up a Catholic. And I, I don't struggle with it. I, I don't think about the differences. I read a lot about the similarities, but I, I don't think about the differences. I think, uh, they all point to the same thing. L live, um, live a humble, um, giving life. And that's all I'm trying to do. But... Um, I did really uh, enjoy uh, a, a talk at the center where somebody there referred to Jesus as a bodhisattva. And I thought that was a really, really uh, wonderful thing for me. Um, a lot of Zen writers talk about the similarities between uh, Judeo-Christianism and, and Zen. You don't see it the other way, I, I think, except for Thich Nhat Hanh, who does keep a crucifix on his altar beside the Buddha. And I love that concept and I don't try and figure it out. I don't know where I'm at with the whole thing, but I do love to sit and I do enjoy being at the center. I'm very excited for you next week and I look forward to being there. Can I throw one more thing in? Um, I, I meant to say, I completely forgot. Um, 
I've been doing, going through, I'm going to take Jukai again myself through this program that I've been part of this year. Um, and it has struck me in going through the precepts that um, for me, they are, they've become like uh, koans in my life. Okay. Oh my gosh. What does this mean here? Just, and I think you alluded to it. So I just want to insert the concept of koan along with these ethical statements like um, don't save the, uh, don't worry about saving the, the Buddha assets, you know. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, Robert, <laughs> hi. hi uh, I wanted to thank you too for uh, your talk. Uh, Robert and I watch Father Brown and uh, this is a show on PBS. It's a, it's a murder mysteries, but they're, uh, they're a lot about religion. And Father Brown is a Catholic priest, but his resolution to people's problems is very much in the Zen tradition. It's like he's a Zen Buddhist, you know, in a, in a Catholic outfit. <laughs> so I just wanted to, uh, again, thank you very much. And it reminded me a lot while I was listening to you of what I had heard from Father Brown. <laughs> I'll have to watch it. I've never seen it. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. See you next week. I'll be actually at the center next week. So looking forward to seeing you, Robert, next week at the center. Yeah, me too. I also looking forward to not having so many Roberts in the Sangha. Right. After, yes. After your Jukai. Yeah. I'll be wearing the Bucks <laughs> champion t-shirt underneath the robe. <laughs> I probably won't take this off for about five months. I'll see you next week, too, in the real. Oh, oh great. Susan. <laughs> Lovely to see you again, Susan. Looking forward to seeing you. Yes. I'll be there for your Jukai, Robert. All right. Okay, see you next week. Everyone, come to the center for the Jukai. Come to the Buddha Hall next Sunday. We can all be together again. Oh, I was hoping to get out there for work. Uh, oh, uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to uh, make it uh, over that weekend, but I'll let everyone know when I'm in Chicago for sure. And I will. Yeah, we'd love to see you, Shannon. You're in New York, right? No, I'm up in uh, upstate New York or upstate, upstate Massachusetts. Uh -huh. Yeah, Yeah. Or no, let us know anytime you come to Chicago. We'd love to love to see you. Oh, I'd love to meet everybody. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, Robert. All right. See you Thank next you. week. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Great, Great morning. Thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs> See you.